you know, I came to the United States on false documents. And to be honest, the Trump administration has set up an office of denaturalization. Do I think I'll be denaturalized? No, but writing that was a bit of a risk, but I thought it was an important risk. And it's very important for me to tell people we came here under difficult circumstances, not totally legally. It was a struggle, but uh, you can make it, and we should all be reaching out and finding how to help these people. Welcome back to Portals, a virtual taste of the International Literature Festival Dublin, taking you beyond your radius. I'm Kaylin Hogan, and today I'll be speaking with Esther Saffron Foer about her post-Holocaust memoir, I Want You to Know We're Still Here, published by HarperCollins. Thank you so much for being with us today, Esther. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm delighted. Delighted. Thank you. How is everything there uh, where you are? You're based in D.C. A little crazy. Uh, The world is a very strange place right now. I personally have been in isolation for at least six weeks uh, and feel really lucky because I have a nice big house and have everything that I need. And I know there are a lot of people that don't, which is so tragic. Uh, we don't know how long this will last. Um, it's There have been a lot of blunders that have been made, I think. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but it's true. Uh, so we don't know where this is going to go, whether how long it'll last, if it'll come back. But it's, it's a strange world we're living in. We're very sorry not to have you in person in Dublin, but hopefully you'll make it, make it here soon. Um, so we're hoping that you could read a passage from your new book and, yeah. and we'll get into the discussion. Great. So I'm going to read right from the beginning of the book. My birth certificate says that I was born on September 8th, 1946 in Siegenheim, Germany. It's the wrong date, the wrong city, the wrong country. It would take me years to understand why my father created this fabrication, why each year my mother came into my room on March 17th, gave me a kiss and whispered, happy birthday. Piercing together the fragments of my family's story has been a lifelong pursuit. I'm the offspring of Holocaust survivors, which by definition means there's a tragic and complicated history. My childhood was filled with silences that were punctuated by occasional shocking disclosures. I understood there was a lot I didn't know besides the secret of my invented birthday. My parents were reluctant to speak of the past and I learned to maneuver around difficult subjects. When I was in my early 40s preparing to give a talk, I decided this might be a good opportunity to fill in a few gaps of our family story. I sat down with my mother in the pink kitchen of her 1950s suburban track house 
on a street where most of the other homes were occupied by families of Holocaust survivors. Sitting at her faux marble laminate kitchen table, I started with a few questions about my father and his experience during the war. He'd been an enigma, a mercurial figure that all conversation danced around, even in my own head. My mother took a sip of the instant coffee that she loved and casually mentioned that my father had been in a ghetto with his wife and daughter. He'd been on a work detail when they were both murdered by the Nazis. Absolutely stunned, I blurted out. He had a wife and daughter? Why haven't you told me this before? How can you be telling me now for the first time? I'd grown up surrounded by ghosts, haunted by relatives who were rarely talked about, and by the stories that no one would share. Thank you so much, Esther. That moment of revelation at the kitchen table uh, is just such a powerful moment that sets off this search that takes you around the world, really, looking for answers about your sister and to find out who she was and, and what happened um, at, you know, at that time. And I think that story of, of silences and, and things unspoken within Irish families is something that we're definitely familiar with uh, in this country. We have a legacy of institutionalization where children were separated from mothers and uh, a history of illegal adoptions. So there are many Irish people who've been searching for each other and trying to find ways to identify each other um, after being separated through a very cruel system. And this is a very long search for you and has been, you know, something that you've become quite an expert at and in finding answers and connecting family. When when did that start for you, that, that sort of search for answers? You know, I didn't, I don't think I even knew that it was a search. Uh, I found myself always kind of putting pieces together. Uh I'm the person in the family who can immediately tell you who's connected to who. I can look at a picture of somebody and identify which part of the family they came from. It's kind of intuitive, and maybe it's intuitive because my family tree was cut to the stump because I didn't have any aunts or uncles or grandparents or cousins. So uh, it became very important to me to find family. It, I, I don't know that there was a point at which it, it began, and I didn't always do it by myself. I have three sons, and I found that one of my sons likes to say that, that I use child labor, that um, when they were little, I would encourage them to do things that I didn't yet have the wherewithal to do myself, maybe to do searches that I I couldn't face myself. Uh, my oldest son, for a uh, senior project in high school, uh, he had to do some sort of a research project, and I encouraged him to spend the time with his grandmother. He had six weeks and to, s to see what he could find. And he, uh, he undertook the project by spending the six weeks driving her to every grocery store for every bargain that she wanted to find, always with a tape recorder between them. And he wrote a beautiful senior project uh, that laid the foundation of our family history. And then when our middle son uh, was at the university, 
he also had to do a project for graduation, but he wanted to spend the summer in Prague, which was mostly for fun. Uh, and I encouraged him to tie to consider tying the trip to Prague with a visit to Ukraine and seeing what he could find. Uh, he he embraced the idea, but I was the one that encouraged it. And and this middle son, of course, is is Jonathan Safranfower, the the author of uh, Everything Is Illuminated, which I I read when I was younger, and is a, a you know a very powerful novel about I guess semi autobiographical about his experience trying to search for answers after used to sending him off to to Ukraine. What what's really interesting is our family story has now been told by multiple generations in very different ways, different voices, different forms. Jonathan's is a novel. It's very much a work of art. But because he wrote that novel, people started to come to me, mostly to complain. These were people from uh, the little villages or descendants of the villages. And of course, it was a novel. It was full of fun and sex and lots of other things. And they would call me and they'd go, it wasn't like that. How could he have done that? And then say to me, but this is what really happened. And uh, so that's when the search was really propelled forward, when people started to come to me and give me little pieces of real information. Uh, the publication of his book actually brought the, the, the walls down on my story. I think you described it as fiction helped produce fact. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's so interesting. And I watch my grandchildren now, even though they're young, also telling versions of the story. And I think uh, it's indicative of we all have to find a way to tell our story, to fill those holes in our, in our heart, in our past, in our own way. And he was able to do it with that novel, but it didn't fill my hole. I had to take the next step. And that experience, I think, of interviewing people we know can be a very difficult one. Actually, I, I teach nonfiction. One of the things, first things I do is tell people to go out and interview someone, and they usually end up interviewing someone they know. And it can be you can end up having conversations that you maybe never would have um, until you sat down and I guess with the idea of writing about it and, and having a more formal conversation. Was it difficult when, when you started trying to speak with your mother um, about the past and at the stage when you knew this was something you did want to write about? How did that sort of shape the conversations and how was that a challenge writing this as nonfiction and as a memoir? Uh, the challenge was always talking to her. She was my mother. She had been through this incredible, horrific experience. And I had always understood that my role in life was to bring joy to my family after everything they'd been through. So I would push, but only so far. And I knew how to push and then step back and then maybe later to raise the question in a different way. But uh, anybody who's interested in doing this, I can't urge them enough to write these stories, to s not even just to write them, to search them out, to put them down, because the people who have the first-hand information will at some point be gone and the stories will be lost forever and there'll be a hole in the family history. 
and grandchildren are a great way to to sort of <laughs> help people open up. You were saying that she was a lot more open with your grandchildren. Well, in talking to me, she saw the pain that we were inflicting on each other. But with her grandchildren, she saw immortality. That if they knew the story, that she would live on for them. And that's important to all of us. So yes, she opened up with them in a way that she never could have with me. And I think you write in the book that history is an end and memory is a beginning. I thought that was a really interesting comment just on on memoir as a form uh but also on how important you know that tradition of of memory of of narrative um is to try and capture the memory of a family the memory of individuals um and within your family particularly memory has been a very important thing you talk about memory as a sense um, you know, as as the sixth sense, um, almost. So, uh, speak to us a little bit about that that position of memory, um, within your family, and and how s- telling stories has been so central to your shared experience. It, it has. I mean, people often say to me, uh, "You raised three sons who are writers. How did you do that? Did they read a lot? No, they watched TV and they ate junk food. I mean, they did what every other kid did." Uh, I was always working full-time, so it was a very loose household, not, not rigid at all. But our family dinner table was kind of sacred, not because the dinner was fabulous, because sometimes it was just spaghetti, but because we'd sit at that table and we'd talk. There was always the dinner time conversation. And they could, they could pick, uh, they, they would sometimes decide that they would pick the discussion topic. And sometimes, to be honest, it was a little uncomfortable and raunchy because it was three boys. But as long as they were serious about the conversation and knew what they were talking about, we let it go. Uh, The dinner table was a place where we could share stories, where we could. We used, I think, every opportunity to share stories. We'd use uh, family rituals. We'd use holidays, in our case, like Passover. when you talk about the exodus from Egypt, well, one Passover, we talked about our own family's personal exodus and what that was like. When you uh, sit at the table at a Passover Seder, they tell you to see yourself in the story. And that's what we hope. Those holidays and most of the Bible are not written that this happened on this date and this happened on that date and this is the flow of history. These are stories. These are family stories. Genesis is all about a family and, and sometimes a dysfunctional family, but they teach us lessons. And it's important to have that. I mean, right now in the midst of the coronavirus, ha- having stories where we know how strong our family has been, that you can survive, is so important. And I think that's such an important lesson for my grandchildren. I think they absolutely have absorbed it. Our family's been through horrific things, a lot worse than this. We're going to make it. The title of the book is, I want you to know we're still here. Yeah, and and stories are a way of of keeping people alive. And I think you discuss that in the book as well, being the last person to remember someone and telling their story in a way to keep them alive. And I think this book is very much a document of, of all those lives and to, you know, remember and pay tribute to all these people in your family. Um, I think that, uh, you know, one of the main 
focuses of of this book and and which you recount in great detail is your mother and father's exodus from Europe to the U.S. And I thought it was really interesting how you spoke about the fact that they, when they first arrived, they weren't called refugees and they weren't called survivors. They were called greeners or they were called immigrants. And so in many ways, it's a story of, you know, of, of migration, of a migrant's experience. And how, you know, writing this book at this time, uh, when we have the migrant crisis in Europe, when we have the situation on the border in the U.S., were these things in your mind as you were, as you were sort of going back over this story and this experience? These are things that are always on my mind. I'm an immigrant. Uh, my children are first-generation Americans. Sometimes that's hard to believe. They're, they all are living wonderful, successful lives, but they're first-generation. And I am always drawn to the stories of refugees. I was a refugee. I was a, after the war, there were somewhere between 250 and 300,000 Jewish refugees. Six million Jews had been killed. And there was this small percentage of people left and nobody wanted them. Even after going through the most horrific world crisis, um, nobody wanted refugees. And I, I so identify with every refugee and have several times our family has adopted a refugee family. And we've had people even live in our house with us for a week or two until they get on their feet and help them move into an apartment. And that was me. Um, and I've seen people build successful lives, but they can't do it alone. They have to do it with support and help. The refugee crisis today in the world um, is horrible. And I feel so sympathetic. And the other piece of the story, when I talk about that first chapter and my birthday, well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that I was born on March 17th. I was born on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, so I have a real affinity for your beautiful country. Uh, but why did my father create a false birth certificate? Because the immigration laws to get out of Europe were so difficult and blatantly anti-Semitic in most parts of the world. And without that falsification, we wouldn't have qualified to get into the United States, even though you know, we, we were born in post-war Europe in, in the graveyard of, of uh, the Jewish world. Nobody wanted us, and people found ways to keep us out. So this, this refugee crisis is very personal for me, and um, I, I, I'm always trying to figure out how I can do something more for somebody who was in the same situation that I was in. And I think you you capture something very powerful as well when you write about the moment that the Germans parachuted into small towns and villages in in what is now Ukraine, um, and the fact that your mother, I think she was only seventeen, fled and and had to leave behind her mother and and her sisters, and it was surprising to some people that um, that everyone didn't immediately try and flee that it wasn't immediately uh you know the sense that everyone had to leave and you speak about the difficulty in leaving the only place you've ever known and the place where all your family um you know resides and the place where all your memories are 
and I thought that was really powerful in in sort of really capturing that that the difficulty of that decision to to flee to become a refugee or to become an immigrant and to leave everything you know um you, you know this is something i think you understand through your own family history but it seems something important for you to communicate through this book as well yes because that's what's happening all over the world uh i my mother will say that she left that it was just her intuition to pick up and leave uh but she went back to her house never said goodbye to her mother and she lived until she was almost 99 and that still haunted her, the fact that she never said goodbye to her mother. Uh, she went back and based on some crazy intuition, in the middle of June, she took her winter coat and a pair of scissors and one change of clothes. Not that she had a lot of changes of clothes, but she took one change with her. What made her do that? She, did, she was fleeing into the unknown. Uh, but she had all her life those survival skills. Uh, when I sit here now in this pandemic, I think, well, what would my mother do? She always had a cabinet in her kitchen stocked with so much flour and sugar and canned vegetables to survive for months. I don't live that way. But as I was stocking up for this pandemic, I thought, now, what did my mother have in that cabinet? What do I need to add to my cabinet? Um, she wouldn't have been caught out with the, the flowers. She would not. <laughs> the flower gone she, on the shelves. <laughs> you know, she, and she wouldn't have been afraid. I think that's important in everything we're going through. She might have been anxious, but she wasn't afraid. She was ready to move forward. So your mother went on this exodus. She, I, you know, escaped into Russia and went as far as, as Asia. And then, as you said, say, come back, came back to her her hometown of, of Kolki in, in what is now Ukraine, and then moved on and, and met your father, and they both traveled together eventually um, to the US. Uh, but in between that time, it, they spent you know time in these places called uh, DP camps, which you also spend time, spent time in as a very young child. And you describe this as a forgotten epilogue in the history of the war and the history of the Holocaust. Can you tell us a little bit about these deep DP camps and that part? I think that's, that, that's so true. And it's true in the refugee crisis together. People come over and you assume they just get settled and everything is okay. Well, in the war is over in Europe, and there are these refugees, and nobody knows what to do with them. The Allies originally said, just go back home. But that just wasn't an option, as it is in today for refugees. They would be killed. They would, people had taken their homes and their clothes. and um, So they set up these displaced persons camp, but they had to do it very quickly. So they set them up in anything they could find. In some cases, it was even former concentration camps. In our case, it was a former POW camp. Uh, and I, I looked, as I was writing the book, I, I loved looking at the pictures of me as a small child uh, with all the wonderful things my parents had done for me and gotten for me. I had a tricycle. I had a beautiful little fur coat. I guess it's a rabbit coat. I don't know. With, and I thought, wow, life was pretty good. And then you step back and you look at the picture, you look at the environment. And I would see army barracks in the back of the picture. And I would see watchtowers and sometimes barbed wire fences. 
So these, the refugees were so trying to rebuild their lives. Uh, the DP camps had the highest birth rate of any place in the world, but they were building their lives in the shadow of the Holocaust and amidst allied forces who didn't know what to do with them and countries that didn't want them. Uh, the camps, our camp, we, uh, uh, Soviet prisoners of war had just left. They weren't clean. There were no kitchens, they weren't heated, and the refugees themselves had to clean them up and make them habitable as much as they could. It, it was a complicated time that people don't talk about. They think, well, the war was over and then everything was good, but it wasn't. And I think people don't talk about the treatment of, of refugees by the Allied forces. I think there was, in your book, you talk about a report about how uh, the people in the DP camps were being treated as badly in some cases as the Nazis had treated them, only the Nazis had exterminated people and murdered well, people. There was a report, President Truman had heard about these reports and he sent somebody over, a professor from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, I believe, to investigate. And he came back, he said, we're treating the Jews the same way the Nazis did. We're just not killing them. General Patton, who was uh, in charge of, I think, southern Germany, uh, in his diary wrote about how Jews were subhuman. Uh, and the Germans, of course, were much more orderly and precise. And often what, what the refugees were telling the Allied soldiers was being funneled through Germans who were um, translating it. And uh, who knows what was translated. The other thing is that we've learned that the soldiers who liberated the concentration camps, who saw the horror of the war, had gone home. And there was a whole new crew of soldiers, whether they were British or American, who had come to handle the next phase. So they really didn't have the understanding and the sympathy for what had happened. All they saw were these people who were unruly, who, who wanted to move on, who were demanding their rights, and uh, were difficult to deal with. I, I think it's such an important thing to remember. I mean, we've just had the, the anniversary of VE Day, and it just gets lost in the narrative, I think. You know, the, the experience of refugees and the treatment of refugees, and there's so many parallels with our, our current experience, I think, across the right. world. Um, so tell us a little bit about the moment where you finally made the trip to Ukraine yourself, there were there were two, I think, main questions that really were burning away throughout this book. And, and one was about you know, the half-sister that you learned about out of the blue from your mother. And the other was this photo that uh, you had given your son Jonathan to take with him and which you were still trying to find information about, the, the photo of your father with a family who had hid him um, at the time when when Jewish people were being murdered in, in these towns and villages. So t tell us about how you finally made that trip and, and what you found there. Um, the trip, it, it was a difficult trip for me to make in my head, intellectually, psychologically, it was a difficult trip. Uh, maybe that's why I had gotten Jonathan to go. And when he went, I couldn't tell my mother that he went uh, until he came back. Uh, and I knew that my mother would be so upset about this. 
So I, I finally built up the courage to make a decision to take the trip. My oldest son had decided to go with me. We had, as you said, this picture of my father with three members of a family that we knew had hidden him. I don't think I ever imagined finding out anything about my half-sister. I assumed that everybody who had anything to do with her was dead, but it was part of the search. But this family had lived in these villages and probably had descendants, and we were alive. My family is alive today because somebody took that risk, and it was a huge risk. Uh, when the uh, Germans were occupying that part of the world, that if they found that you were hiding somebody, they would kill your whole family. And, you know, I don't know what we wanted to do. We wanted to say thank you. We wanted to say, here we are, and we're here because of you. Um, so it, the, I, I, I guess I was a bit of a uh, Sherlock Holmes detective. I, on, on trips to Europe, to Israel, really, and Brazil... Um, not trips taken specifically for this purpose, actually trips that I took because uh, Jonathan was going to literary festivals and he had a six-month-old son and a one-year-old son and I came along as the babysitter. And uh, people might come up to him and say, well, this is what really happened and my family came from here. And he had already done the story. He'd moved on to his next work. Uh, so he'd give me those cards and he said, if you want to follow up, follow up. And so I started to follow up and started to piece this information together. And it became clear that actually my father, that Jonathan went to Trochenbrod, which is where my father's family was from, where his mother lived. But it became clear it wasn't where he was during the war. And that Jonathan going to Trochenbrod was not looking in the right place for these people. Somebody finally told me, oh, your father lived in this little village, and this was the name of it. I have friends who have done a lot of work in Ukraine and knew translators and tour guides, and I hired one of them to go to this village with this picture that I had of my father and this family. And this wonderful young woman who went emailed me. She said, I think I found them. And here's pictures of the family. And, you know, it looked like it could have been them, but who knows, maybe not. I guess I, uh, the search was one piece, but actually finding them was something I thought would never really happen. So ultimately, in the insanity of my search, I hired a former FBI forensic photography expert uh, who actually turned out to have had a family that was from Ukraine. And he analyzed the pictures for me. And we would look at them through crosshairs and measure distances between facial features. And at the end of the hour, he said, I can't tell you it's them. But seeing how disappointed I was, he said, and I also can't tell you it's not them. And he gave me a really important clue. He said, when you go there, look at the clothing that people wear. This is not like the United States or Ireland today where we have closets full of clothes. If they were having their pictures taken, it was probably in the same clothes. Uh, and that was ultimately a key piece of, um, a key clue for me, 
When I went there, indeed, I found, a, we met with the family, the descendants of the family that hid my father. It was pretty certain it was them, but I still couldn't quite convince myself. And we sat there and looked at their pictures, and there were indeed matches of the stories, of the clothes. Uh, I remember leaning over to Frank, because we started the search, and the young woman who was our guide and uh, researcher said, I'm 90% sure it's them. And Frank, my son, said, well, how can you be 90% sure? He's, she said, because the last 10% is up to you. And as we sat there in the living room of this house in the village where the family had lived, I'm listening to this and I'm looking at the pictures and I leaned into Frank, I said, can this be real? And he said, 110%. Um, and I keep in touch with them. I call them my Ukrainian family. They call us their American family. Um, it, it's, it's a relationship that's beyond family. Incredible to make that connection. And, and, you know, there's just so much more in the book about that whole story and that whole experience. Uh, but another part of your visit was a very difficult experience and painful experience of, of visiting the mass graves where your own loved one, your own family had been buried. And, and there's some images from this book that, I mean, just really stick with you, I think. Um, the accounts from witnesses of, of the ground still moving on these graves after people had been buried and, you know, lined up and shot and, and you know, sort of buried in these pits. Uh, and another is the one of your, of your aunt um, who was also murdered and uh, accounts of someone walking around in her dress after her death. And that, that just really, I think hit me and um, very, you know, those two, those two images that are really haunting. How was that experience for you going and, you know, visiting these, these burial places, um, you know, in the middle of nowhere, really? Uh, Literally the middle of nowhere. Uh, at least one of these towns had been totally leveled. And uh, hopefully when you all read the book, you'll see there's also humor in it. Life was filled with humor. We were with some Israelis who were also visiting some of these mass graves, and there were lots of funny things that happened when they, we were offered food. Um, everybody said, no, I'll just have bread, because they were afraid of eating pork. Uh, the Israelis brought this huge Israeli flag in the most embarrassing moment and unfurled it in the middle of the Ukrainian forest. And as I put the humor in, and I actually left some of the funniest stories out because they were mm -hmm. too, too <laughs> improper to put in, uh, I thought, well, you know, should I be doing this? This is a horrific story. But life is filled with humor, and it doesn't make the sadness any less sad. It just makes it life. Um, the other thing that surprised me, and then I'll answer the question because I haven't yet, uh, is that village life was just like life that we have here. There were divorces, there were abortions, there were, you know, all sorts of family issues, which sort of surprised me. I mean, you have this idyllic picture of life in these villages, but it was life. It was life just like we have life now, and I, that's important to understand. 
So going, going to the mass graves, I, that was ultimately what all I thought I would be doing on the trip. I didn't expect to really find anything. I expect to be walking the ground my ancestors had walked on and breathing the air uh, that they had breathed. Uh, and, and to visit the mass graves where I could finally say, Jews say Kaddish, a mourner's prayer. And before I went, I thought, I, I want to leave something of myself behind. Um, I'm going there. What's, what's the message I want to... And obviously I wasn't leaving it behind for them, but somehow I needed to convey something. And I decided to bring a family picture. We do a family picture every year, all of us together. Uh, and it's so important to me. My parents came to the United States having lost all of their families. They had me. And our last family picture had 14 people in it. So I decided to bring those pictures uh, and to go to the mass graves that my grandmothers are in, that my great-grandparents are in, that my aunts are in, and my cousins are in. And to say, you know, you're there, you probably didn't imagine that you had any survivors, but we are still here. And it is a story of resilience and survival, this book. And, right. and like you said, that humor and, you know, these wonderful stories of your family and the traditions that you have, it just shines through the entire book. Um, and, you know, especially you're, you have six grandchildren, I think, is it? So a very strong future ahead as well. And you speak about the importance of names and carrying on, right. uh, you know, the, the memory of people. Uh, so definitely, you know, these are being carried forth and, and ahead with your family. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your more unusual collection that you have in your house, the memory, uh, yeah. the memory jars. <laughs> How long, when did you first start this collection? I, 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 I'm not totally sure, uh, but I've been doing it for quite a while. I, I think it really came into focus when I went to the Ukraine. And, you know, if you want to bring back a souvenir, what are you going to bring back? This is not a place to go buy tchotchkes, if you will. So I, um, but it, it preceded that. Uh, I, I think I tell a story in the book. Jonathan always did this. His, his college room, uh, dorm room, had Ziploc bags with various collections of things that was so awful that when um, the fire inspectors walked through the dorms to see how things are, the report was that they came into his room and they go, holy shit, you've got to see this. Um, so it's become just kind of, I guess, somewhat of a family tradition. When I went to the mass graves in the same way that I wanted to leave my picture buried in those graves, I wanted to take something back with me. So I had these little baggies, plastic baggies, and I took some dirt from each of the mass graves that I could bring back. Um, ultimately, I've brought back dirt from wonderful places. Uh, my husband is always horrified that I'm walking around with these plastic bags and that I'll go into historic sites and be looking for something to pilfer, uh, to put into my plastic bag. And I sometimes have to wait until he turns his back. Um, and, and he says, you know, you're crossing international borders with this stuff, but nobody stopped me yet. I suppose this is going to be an alert to, uh, 
the authorities that they they'll should be start watching looking. You. They'll be watching <laughs> they'll you in the future. You won't be able to go anywhere. <laughs> right. Uh, so I have them lined up in, on my mantle. Uh, we live in a lovely house and they look like an art installation. They're all in identical jars. They're labeled on the top and there's dirt from all those mass graves. There's also uh, our youngest grandson on his first trip. He went to Greece with his mother for a wedding. He brought me back sand from Greece so that I could add it to my collection. So there's the sadness and the joy of this family living and moving forward and doing amazing things and I hope making the world a better place. It's a it's a wonderful. I mean, you must have quite an archive. I think between the memory jars and I, you were talking about you know the the in depth research you've done, just having binders and binders of files and documents. I guess for people who are maybe thinking of writing their own life story or writing a memoir, uh, do you have any advice? Uh, how long did this take you to finally put it all together? And was there anything you learned from, from writing the memoir and how to approach the narrative that you would share so with So my people? piece of advice is do it. Uh, don't worry about what form it will take. Just collect those stories and collect them while there are still people who have those stories that you can ask. I was never sure that it would turn into a book. I wasn't sure what form it would take. But I knew that if I didn't put these stories down, they would be lost. I am the family historian. I'm the collector of these memories. And if I had any hope of my grandchildren and their grandchildren understanding where they came from, it's going to be up to me to tell them. And uh, people have often asked me, you know, having three sons who were writers, did you consult them? What were you going to do? And I was frankly too intimidated to consult them. I just started writing and it took a while the search went on it was a lifetime the writing took almost two years um, and I didn't show it to them until I was almost done it was not only something I have done for future generations and something to come to remember my ancestors but it's something ultimately I did for myself it's the whole process of writing and helped me understand myself better. And if I say I lived with ghosts, and I kind of always have, putting the ghosts on the paper, I think took them out of my bed sometimes. Uh, it was a, a wonderful process for me personally. Um, yeah, and I, when I showed it to my sons only when it was almost done, and they made a few suggestions, you know, go a little deeper here. Um, but ultimately, I understood it had to have my voice. And that was the gift I gave myself. Jonathan didn't want to take out the scene from the dorm room, no. <laughs> there was no <laughs> <arguing over> that. <laughs> I think it's, it's such an important process. And uh, you're very transparent about the process throughout the book and about the experience of writing it and and speaking with people and I think that really helps the narrative so it's no it's a very powerful account are you working on anything at the moment do you hope to, to write anything else in future I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure um, I, I'm somebody who has all who is always working on something uh, most recently after writing the book uh, and now going on this tour I've been playing with conceptual art 
so I mean, I in a way, the, the like my memory jars, which actually you can see behind me. I on can, the mantel. lined up on the mantelpiece. <laughs> they're smaller than I expected. For some reason, oh, I thought of them as massive jars. No, they're, you know, they're, you can't quite tell what they are. They just look like a piece of art under a piece of art. They do, uh, indeed. Uh, so I've just been letting myself go in a different creative direction for a while and see where I land, but there will be something. Excellent. And we're through this, uh, series we're we're asking writers what freedom means to them in this moment. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, in, in a way, freedom for me meant coming to the United States, but I am so horrified that that freedom isn't available to a lot of people. I, I can't help but think of the world we're living in, the refugees all over the place. And even for myself, by the way, um, when I wrote the book and I start with that story about my birth certificate, I was advised by some lawyers that, you know, I came to the United States on false documents. And to be honest, the Trump administration has set up an office of denaturalization where they're denaturalizing people. Do I think I'll be denaturalized? No, but writing that was a bit of a risk, but I thought it was an important risk. Um, and it's very important for me to tell people we came here under difficult circumstances, not totally legally. Um, it was a struggle, but um, you can make it, and we should all be reaching out and finding how to help these people. I think it's so important, that vilification of illegal immigrants, uh, particularly, I mean, with the number of Irish Americans who are in positions of power and influence in the U.S., whose family likely came <laughs> to, you know, to America in, in different ways, not all of them legal. So I think it's important that people acknowledge that and that it's... Right. I mean, in, the, in this White House, uh, one of the president's key advisors is a young Jewish guy, Stephen Miller. His grandmother came here. Uh, how, what can these people be thinking? They wouldn't be here. Stephen Miller uh, has some particularly extreme views. I think yes. he's been described as a white nationalist by some. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that's... But he's the grandson of immigrants. And how important do you think is memoir and, and telling these stories? You know, do you think it can affect change in this time? Or do you think that it can help in some way in this moment? I think the importance of memoir, and, and you, you talked about this with history being the end of something. History is a series of dates. It's grand events on a global scale, on a national scale. Memoirs are those individual stories. It's a way to really understand, to put yourself in that story. I mean, you mentioned my mother seeing somebody wear her sister's dress. That's a powerful image that you don't get from knowing the day that village was liberated. It was liberated on this date and there was somebody walking around in my mother's dress. Uh, those individual stories, as in the Bible, are so powerful and tell us so much about ourselves and family and life. Uh, I think the memoirs are just critical to, to really understanding what happened to people, not just the grand scheme of, of history and events. 
And we're in a moment uh, right now of, of huge change, you know, historic change, I think. So I guess documenting these moments and, and taking testimonies from people is, is really important. And it shows the amount of work that goes into finding them if they're not there. I think that you've shown, um, yeah, very clearly that it's, it's better if they're, if they're sort of safeguarded first at the time. Um, but uh, lastly, I'd love to ask you, is there anything that you're reading or listening to at the um, moment that you would recommend? So uh, really interesting. I was, uh, my American publisher is Penguin Random House, and they had me come to New York to speak to a group of librarians. They had a handful of nonfiction writers whose new books they were releasing. And the person who spoke just before me wrote a book, uh, Hidden Valley Road, uh, which which uh, I read and thought was really powerful. It's about a family of twelve, where some of the half the children are schizophrenic, have serious mental illness. But what was so powerful is there were four writers on this uh, platform at this table speaking to these librarians, and his name is Robert Kolker. And I looked at him and I said, "Oh my God, your family couldn't possibly be from Kolk." And he said, "Yes, of course. I'm so excited." Uh, so it's, it's how I'm always looking for connections. Uh, anyway, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was really powerful. I also, I, I enjoy reading memoirs. Uh, I recently read Edgar Caret's Seven Good Years, and, and it's a memoir, and it's funny. Uh, it's poignant and, and humorous. Uh, I'm always reading a bunch of books, but usually I'm just going from book to book. From book to book, yes. It's been really wonderful to speak to you and I think particularly just, you know, being aware of, of how the parallels with the refugee crisis at the moment. And it's everywhere. I mean, I think from right. the border in the US to in Ireland, we actually have a system called direct provision, which is really interesting because we abbreviate it to DP. So when I read the DP camps, it was almost an exact parallel with the system of DP we have here for asylum seekers who are essentially institutionalized in what have been described as camps. And the, the conditions, particularly in the pandemic, are, are very difficult. So an ongoing issue, I think, around the world. We seem to have not learned a whole lot. Well, hopefully, I think your book goes to shedding a lot of light on that and, and so. uh, teaches uh, as gives us a lot of insight into these issues and experiences. So, thank you so much, Esther. And uh, I thank want you. I want you to know we're still here is is out now, and uh, it's it's a very powerful book. So, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you. Esther Saffron Foer's book, I Want You to Know We're Still Here, is available now through our festival bookseller, The Gutter Bookshop. Next episode, we'll be speaking with novelist David Peace, author of The Damned United, Patient X, and The Tokyo Trilogy. Thanks for listening in, and thanks to our sponsors. The International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council.